CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry G. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Coin World Podcast, episode number 150. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we're excited. Gosh, you know, we're not doing anything special because of the milestone. That's a sesquicentennial in uh, a term that you might be familiar with in a numismatic context. Nothing special other than continuing to do what we do every week. And of course, you may have just noticed that Chris is along for the ride this episode. We're glad he's here. Of course, we're glad you're here making this worth doing. And uh, somebody on the other end of this, a special shout out to Reed at the coin shop. I saw him last uh, weekend. Uh, he and his dad were in there. He is uh, a listener of the coin world podcast. I want to thank him and uh, looking, f- maybe, maybe we'll see you read at the show in St. Louis this weekend. Uh, I plan to visit hopefully Friday, certainly Saturday, weather dependent. I don't think we're going to get any bad weather in St. Louis this week that I know of. We could not do this again without you. We could not do this without Coin World Plus, though, as well. So we want to thank them. Uh, I know Chris is in talking before our recording today. I've got Chris on the path to, to get Coin World Plus so he can download it and at, start adding some slabbed coins that are in his collection and uh, that's something that anybody out there who has U.S. coins that are slabbed, you, you want to do that. It gives voice to your collection. Check that out, Coin World Plus. Of course, we're firing on all cylinders today, right, Chris? Oh, we certainly are. Um, and also, I, I have my first Coin World Plus coin, as a quick aside. It's a 2021D uh, Kennedy half dollar. Yes. Uh, so. Yeah, so no, so listeners should definitely think about doing that. Yeah, we are firing on all cylinders. We're uh, going to be covering a back issue of Coin World from 1993. Uh, you and Larry, uh, also our listeners might have noticed that Larry isn't here. Uh, he's on vacation, right? Yes, in in uh, broadcast terms, they often say that they're on assignment. So Larry, Larry <laughs> is on assignment this week, taking a much-deserved rest. But Larry and I got to speak to our interview subject, Chang Bullock, of CIT. Some folks may know that as Coin Invest Trust. They brand themselves CIT in any event. Uh, Chang is the, I believe, the North American representative, but we talked about the uh, ultra-modern market, the uh, the new issues that CIT is coming out with, uh, just to get a flavor for an understanding of some of the things that as I said right at the top of our interview, you know, CIT might be known for the coins that people don't think of as coins sometimes. They look more like sculptures or, or more like objects to art, you know. Um, so anyway, we have that interview a little bit later. And then, of course, I'm going to be putting Chris to the test with some trivia. We'll have our usual foray into the crevices and uh, nooks and crannies of numismatics. 
speaking of nooks and crannies, I thought uh, a story by our colleague Paul Jokes was especially fun because many listeners may have heard of the time capsules that were out there. It's in the news, you know, about a month ago, the Robert E. Lee Memorial Monument in Richmond. There were two time capsules actually discovered. One was lead and the other was copper. Well, the general media covered the story and, and CoinRule covered the story as well. But uh, recently, a CoinRule story, Paul Jokes uh, had a rather lengthy story that really delved into the meat of this. That's where I think you know CoinRule can be of value sometimes when we're not just um, we're not just following the herd of the media and okay, this is what's out there, you know. You had to look at a lot of coverage to really get a sense of what coins are in this, uh, in these uh, boxes, if you will, these these time capsules. And a lot of the major media, the general media, you know, they're not tuned into that, right? Their their ears don't perk up at the coin and and they go, well, what is it necessarily? But they're delving into the broader story. Well, Paul jumped in and got some great information from uh, officials with the state of Virginia, the Virginia Department of Historic Resources, which is actually going through and documenting the capsules and um, trying to make sense of, of what they found. Well, so the lead box had just one numismatic item. That was a silver British halfpence dated 1887. That was the year that the Lee Memorial was dedicated. And specialist in British numismatics might be aware that that was a special year of issue for Queen Victoria, who's featured on that coin, uh, because that was the 60th anniversary, or 50th anniversary, sorry, 50th anniversary of her reign, 1837 to 1887. And of course, Victoria is on the obverse and the date in the crown reverses, you know, on the back. The second box in the cornerstone was copper, 36 pounds the sucker weighed. There was a lot of water in there, lots of paper-wrapped material, including Harper's Weekly, Soggy Bible. There was an 1883 Seated Liberty dime stuck to the Bible, uh, more than a dozen uh, U.S. large cents, and a number of Confederate States of America notes, anywhere from 50 cents to $100 notes, and a number of obsolete notes from banking authorities throughout Southern states. So you really, uh, you need to check out Paul's story uh, in CoinWorld, CoinWorld.com as well. But we certainly hope you're subscribing and seeing that in the print issue. It's uh, it's a fun story. And, you know, it's one of those things that gets, it helps draw attention to the hobby in a subtle way. It's hard to really quantify what that means to people getting excited about coins. But any time you have news of uh, older coins being found in a context like that, um, it's, it's fun. So I, I thought that was of note for uh, the top of the issue this week. Yeah, no, it was a great story. Um, I, I really enjoyed Paul's reporting. And it's nice, you know, something you said at the top of, um, of your description there, um, you know, kind of, kind of caught in my mind. It's interesting to see the way that, you know, the so-called mainstream media, I don't care for using that term because it's pretty loaded, but it, it is an apt descriptor. It's interesting to see the way that they cover things like these, especially like um, national news stories that have some kind of numismatic 
aspect or some kind of numismatic facet to them. I mean, obviously, you know, the story of the Lee statue and the discovery of the time capsule is a lot bigger than just the coins that were in it, but the coins that were in it were nonetheless a very important part of the story. And, you know, and, and Paul's description of that, you know, really helps to kind of fill in the, um, you know, kind of fill in that part of the story. But it, but it is interesting to see the, what, what the sort of mainstream media chooses to focus on and then, you know, where the numismatic media can come in and, uh, and make our contributions sure. you know, based on the things that we find interesting, which is, which is really cool. And I didn't see anything factually wrong with, uh, you know, the broader coverage, but that coverage just doesn't home in on or zero in on coin side of things, the numismatic side of things. Uh, and of course that's where, you know, we, we come in to play and, and want to dig in. That's, that's the meat. That's the fun for our coverage is to be able to extrapolate on what is out there, you know, what you may be aware of, but then to, you know, hear the rest of the story to, uh, and now, you know, the rest of the story, good day to, uh, to borrow a uh, Paul Harvey moment, the rest of the story. And uh, Paul really does provide the rest of that story. So uh, that was fun. I uh, found it really neat and it really dovetails nicely with something that uh, a couple things that jumped out at me from both this week in numismatic history and this week in coin world history. So, you know, every week we peer into the past and um, this week I'm going to February 12th, 1915. Uh, that was when the cornerstone for the Lincoln Memorial was laid and according to CoinWorld's coverage in 2009, among items in the cornerstone was a series 1899 $1 silver certificate that pictured Lincoln on the note. And we even have the serial number in the record as to what note is supposed to be in that. And one then immediately starts wondering if at some point in the future that cornerstone will be recovered, that that time capsule unveiled, how fun would it be to um, pull off a, a heist or a, um, a sleight of hand to somehow get that note and replace it with something else? Now, if that really happens, I'm going to be implicated. I'm, I'm only joking, but... <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, Jeff, don't give the listeners ideas. Someone's going to go do this. Well, now. you know, it's funny because in Springfield, Illinois where Lincoln is buried, there was a threat in the years after his death, uh, people that were trying to rob his grave. And so, you know, I, I don't put anything past uh, humanity anymore, <laughs> uh, but I, I certainly don't mean to implicate myself. Somebody in, you know, X years from now is going to listen to this and go, aha, he did it. But no, it's it just, it's funny that the history records the serial number in, in this case. And yet in the, um, the Lee monument, there was no record that we know of, uh, it was all about finding out, well, what is in there? We think we know, we have an idea, you know, can we confirm that? Well, we know apparently what is in the cornerstone at the Lincoln Memorial because that was laid on February 12th, February 12th, 1915. Uh, of course, February 12th is Lincoln's birthday, I believe. And that was also the day, just as an aside, on uh, in 1909 when New York City Mayor George B. McClellan Jr., son of the Civil War general, distributed the city's official Lincoln Birth Centenary Medal 
designed by Bela Lyon Pratt and struck by Whitehead and Hogue. That was also in the history this week. So it was fun to see the intersection of time capsules and Lincoln and all that. And that continues when I look at the February 8th, 1993 issue of Coin World. We went back to this issue because 1993 was the year that our interview subject got started in coins and the coin industry. And it wasn't on the front page. This was on like page 10 or 12 of the issue, but it also connects well and is going to be of interest to Chris because the headline is Old Ironsides Coughs Up Bits of History. The second deck is Coins Removed from Beneath Ship's Masts on Display. Coins were issued more than eight decades prior, were removed in fall of 1992 from under the mast of the USS Constitution. The coins were put on display at the USS Constitution Museum in... Oh, Boston, Massachusetts. Boom. There, I've been. I've, I've actually, I've walked, uh, I've walked all through the ship. I, I would uh, envy you, and maybe if I can come visit, I w- will go there. But, uh, dude, please do. That'd be that'd be an awesome, uh, that'd be an awesome day trip. And there's a numismatic connection. Yes. Yeah, so there, uh, in this news story, in the 1993 issue, the 165 coins with a face value of ten dollars and eighty six cents were taken from beneath the ship's mainmast. Is it mizenmast or mizzenmast? I believe mizzenmast. mizzenmast and foremast, where they had been placed by superstitious sailors, say that three times fast, as part of a custom. You know, uh, many people know that it's often customary for sailors to put coins under the mast when they're being built before, you know, setting, um, you know, getting released into the sea as a way to pay for the deceased sailors to make the journey across the river Styx into the underworld. Uh, This is an ancient maritime tradition and the old Ironsides, the um, America's oldest battleship, I think that custom happened and, and has been part of the constitution history as well. And, Uh, collectors may know that you can find out there, uh, I believe they were sold in the 60s or 80s, I'm not sure which, uh, when there was a um, a campaign to raise money, but you can find medals made from the USS Constitution, uh, from metal that was used on the hull and and in other parts of the ship. Uh, There are medals, M-E-D-A-L-S, that exist from the metal, M-E-T-A-L, of the ship. So it, it's their numismatic connection all around. This is sort of a, uh, you know, all those coins under the mast are sort of their own time capsule. So that really fits the sort of semi-theme for this part of the episode. As you were describing those uh, relic metals, I um I I googled it because I I the the mention of the coins beneath the mast and these medals kind of stuck in my head and I remembered reading something about them. I found your coverage. Uh, I found your coverage of a uh, Constitution medal. So uh, it, uh, what I'll do it's a uh, stark contrast. Ah yes, um, that's that's one of them. Yes, I I actually have been to the ship. I forgot that. Yeah yeah. So so we'll drop the uh, the link or links, um, depending on uh, which pieces we want to include. Uh, we'll drop uh, something in the show notes. So if you all want to go and check out uh, some of Jeff's old coverage uh, that, that details uh, those medals struck from metal from the USS Constitution, 
uh, you can check that out, which would be pretty cool. And actually, I think the story that I did was a very, very modern 2000 eight or something, you know, but there are earlier pieces and maybe that, you know, so long ago, I don't remember what I wrote five years ago, 10 years ago, there's a whole class of items that would fit into a USS constitution themed collectible area. So, uh, you know, check it out. Uh, it's fun stuff. Anybody who likes American naval history, general naval history, relic medals in general, uh, you you did unknowingly answer the trivia question this week. So I'm going to have to pivot while, you know, while we're, we're building this airplane while it's in flight. So I've got to come up with a different trivia question for you to answer because it was going to be an easy one. What do you call these medals? But anyway, anyway, <laughs> oh, oops. Well, I'll think of that while you take the listeners into that issue's letters to the editor. How about that? Uh, there were two things. Uh, there are two, two letters jumped out at me, uh, both of which were kind of paper money related. And the first is entitled Wants Former Designs. And it reads, the U.S. Treasury has issued the $1,000 bill on a souvenir card. I'm so delighted with their offerings. I have been ordering souvenir cards for years. They are inexpensive and almost like the original, except that they are one-sided. This brings to mind the question of why the same is not done for coins. Having reissues of former designs made like the treasury notes and sold for collectors, they might also be one-sided. I've always liked coins for their beauty rather than their value. For example, I like early bust coins. I wish they were obtainable cheaply in an uncirculated condition because then we all could enjoy their lovely portraits like we do paper money with a minimum of expense and a maximum of enjoyment. Also, why can't we have native scenes as on the intaglio print uh, the BEP is offering on our circulating paper money instead of antique car 1929 vintage from a guy, a person named Bob Olickson from Cleveland, Ohio. And this jumped out at me because first of all, I find souvenir cards really interesting too. I haven't started collecting them, but I have written fairly briefly about them. And Mr. Olickson brings up a valuable point, which is that these souvenir cards are fairly inexpensive and they weren't sold for very much back in the 1990s when he was writing and you know you can own a pretty decent reproduction or a pretty decent approximation of incredibly rare notes that you might not be able to afford otherwise and his concept of doing it for coins is really intriguing it could be an interesting product and i know there are some private mints and and you know some people try to recreate famous coin designs on boolean rounds and things like that so there's some i think there are some numismatic objects that kind of I kind of map on to the idea that he proposes here. But I thought, I thought it was interesting that someone kind of made that connection between sort of the uniface. He says one-sided. The term is uniface. Um, you know, uniface souvenir cards and uniface, you know, reproduction or re- restruck or how- however it is that he imagined that the designs could be reproduced. Um, you know, his concept of sort of a uniface collector um, editions of uh, famous American coins. It's an interesting one. It reminded me a little bit, obviously these were commemorative coins. So they were just fun. They were sort of, their nature was fundamentally different than what he proposes, but it made me think of the 2016 um, winged Liberty head dime and standing Liberty quarter, the gold uh, winged Liberty head dime and standing Liberty quarters that the U S mint produced. And and the half, uh, there was a half as well, right? I think. I think oh there was yeah, a yeah. I believe well. you're right. I, I yeah. yes. The gold 1916, 2016, you know, centennial coinage. It reminded me of that. Obviously, those coins are not uniface, um, and they were issued by the mint. They're not uniface, but you know, it, it shows the kind of. It, it shows how beloved those designs are, and I think that it kind of 
I imagine that the impulse to create those commemoratives is sort of similar to Mr. Olickson's idea about, you know, having these beautiful designs recreated. It, it struck me that those two things were similar. In in hindsight, though, I mean, we can look and say that the 2021 Morgan and Peace dollars uh, fit in that schema, if that's the right use of that word. You have um, the 2001, was it silver uh bison or buffalo uh, dollar that works on uh, works in that as well. You know, the idea of the mint taking classic designs and making new versions for collectors, you know, it's something that world mints have really, I look at, you know, the Royal Canadian mint and Royal mint, especially uh, the Royal Australian mint has done it with um, some issues as well. The Holy dollar and dump, particularly, but the Royal Canadian Mint has uh, has done multiple modern issues of the classic circulating designs, Blue Nose, the Beaver on the five-cent coin, the Caribou on the 25-cent coin, that kind of thing. Uh, the Royal Mint has been doing this great engravers series, and one of the earlier ones, if not the earliest one, was Una and the Lion, which is that classic 1939 coin design gold five pound coin with a young Una leading the, the, the nation represented by the lion, the fierce lion. These, I think the three graces design, famous design is, has been part of that. They just launched another addendum or, or portion to that program. There is a demand for collector interest in certainly across U.S. and world numismatics, items that showcase earlier design beauties. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, the, the bust coinage wouldn't necessarily excite me. Uh, I think the, the ones you pointed out are definitely more in that realm. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I appreciate his thoughts in, in that regard anyway. So, yeah, absolutely. The second uh, letter was also uh, paper money related. It had to do with something that was something of a breaking news story when this edition was published. The letter is entitled Reports Finding Notes, and it reads, quote, A little while ago, I found $1 series 1988A CA web fed notes by surprise. Then I found a BEP report which said some notes were printed series 1988 CA from C64000001A to C960000000A. Then I started saving a CA note from circulation, each starting with different first two numbers. My packs of WebFed notes uh, fell into the range of the above serial numbers. But then... I found note uh, 762102368A was web-fed and a note uh, C77161811A was not web-fed. Like CoinWorld said in an article a few weeks ago, the BEP does not quote the web-fed serials. But it looks to me as if the web-fed notes printed may have run from C64000001A to C77000000A. Then the rest of the run was sheet fed, as I noted when I found packs of CB that the CB notes were not web fed and a couple of C of CC I found are also are not web fed. I just found some of the series 1988 ACA $5 from the Fort Worth facility in a Philadelphia bank. Maybe some currency collectors like myself would be interested in this information from a person named George M. Schubert from Morton, Pennsylvania. 
Uh, and there's an editor's note that explains, for those of you who don't know what web press notes are, there's an editor's note that briefly explains them. And it reads, quote, The BEP began printing series 1988A $1 Federal Reserve notes on its new WebFed system in June of 1992. The notes printed on the WebFed press are easy to spot because of certain adaptations made for the press. Most significantly, the plate location number and face check letter have been eliminated from the face of the notes, and the plate number on the back of the note has been moved from the bottom of the E in 1 to the top. However, the BEP is not distinguishing between notes printed by either sheet-fed or web-fed uh, method in its monthly production reports as it uh, feeds them through the trimming and overprinting equipment. That assures collectors that they may find notes from uh, both printing methods within a specific block. So I found this interesting because I've briefly covered uh, WebPress notes before. That's an interesting little piece of relatively recent BEP history. Um, Paul um, Jilks, you know, we're referencing his coverage uh, quite a bit today, as we often do. Uh, and sometimes I can't remember. I'll have to dig back into the archives, and maybe we can um, put the date in the show notes. But he recently did uh, a paper money feature on WebPress notes. So readers who are interested in learning a little bit more about uh, that uh, BEP experiment in the early to mid-1990s uh, might be interested. But I found this letter interesting not only because it referred to web press notes, which are sort of an interesting, they're interesting collectible notes themselves, but I also thought it was interesting that he was uh, finding them in sort of, not in circulation, but in sort of packs, which reminded me of sort of hunting for, you know, people who hunt through change for coins or who hunt through uh, rolls from a bank. This kind of reminded me of that, except looking in this case for web press notes. Yeah, it's just a reminder that uh, there's a bunch of ways to attack this. You don't have to uh, focus on the you know million dollar rarities or the um, even you know the thousand dollar items. You can just uh, look through your pocket change or go to the bank. I mean, I on Saturday um, I went to the coin shop um, and talked to a guy there. He you know he and his son are going through. They're doing roll hunting like what I did twenty twenty some years ago, thirty years ago. And, um, you know, it's just a reminder that there's stuff out there and you got to work for it. And it's not, uh, you know, it's obviously it's, you know, they were delighted to have found some, had some good hits. There was some, you know, some times where they really, you know, rough patch missed, missed finding anything good, so to speak, but they're doing the work and they're having fun. They're not going to get rich, but it's just something to do. Something fun gives you a, a pursuit, the hunt, the thrill of the hunt. And uh, it's just one more way to be involved. So, so very good. Um, we've covered a lot of ground here today, and it's time you've proved your metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, somewhat. But now it's time for you to prove it even more because last week I asked you a trivia question, and this is for all the listeners out there, of course, as well. Chris is by proxy representing you. We were in Ohio, and I wanted to know about the town where the Mormons, or Church of Latter-day Saints, were in Ohio before moving further west to Nauvoo, Illinois, and Missouri, and then all the way out to Salt Lake, because there is a numismatic connection. What is the numismatic connection? Do you have any idea the story of this town and the numismatic connection to the Mormons? I do. Uh, The town, and in fact, I benefited from our colleague Larry Jewett, who we've missed on this episode. I benefited from his work because when you asked me that question, it occurred to me that I had recently read it in an issue of Coin World from August of 2021. The paper money cover feature actually deals with this. 
The answer is uh, to which town it is, is it's Kirtland, Ohio. And the numismatic collection connection is that um, the Mormon settlers who were in the town as they made their way west uh, issued their own paper money. So you can collect notes uh, that the Mormons produced have circulating medium of exchange in uh, in Kirtland. Yes. In the 1830s, I believe. Yes, you are correct. And um, you know, so shortly after the founding of the church, in 1830, 1836, they moved to Kirtland from the East Coast. They um, wanted to get a bank, and the state of Ohio denied their charter. So they had created the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, and they didn't have enough capital. So then they issued anti-banking notes, and these come in uh, one, two, and three dollar denominations. Some of them were signed by Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of the LDS movement. Uh, many were done by scribes. It's impossible to determine which notes have the genuine signature. Uh, they often traded like many uh, obsolete banknotes uh, at the time uh, for a discount over their or below their face value. Eventually, the bank collapsed and many of the inhabitants left. That's an interesting facet. And then eventually they, they ended up in the state of Deseret, which is, um, you know, in modern day Utah and issued paper money again. They would also, in multiple denominations, they would also issue their own coins. So, I mean, there's just uh, many layers to this story. And what's interesting to this, I'm going to build on this since I have to you know, I'm, I'm, I, you knocked me out of the pocket and I've been scrambling in the backfield all, all episode now. Um, <laughs> Dude, I could, I, I've got my coin world trivia game on my bookshelf next to my desk. <laughs> I could, I could grab it. Well, I mean, I, I have the trivia game right here as well. I mean, I could just, right. I could just grab, uh, you know, I, I like to find something that's sort of related to our discussion, but um, how about this? Since we were, we were talking about 1830, right? Uh, and the Mormons. Yep. Let's go to mm -hmm. 1930 and say how many mints were in operation as coining facilities in 1930? This is novice level question, U.S. theme. You got to have an easy one every now and then. Think about that. You'll you'll come up with the answer. We're talking, of course, of, we're, we're talking about new issues stuff. So it's, it's fun to talk about uh, what the U.S. Mint, uh, you know, some of the U.S. Mint history you know, almost a century ago. So uh, give a listen to the interview with Chang Bullock. It was insightful. It was fun. He is uh, such a nice guy, fun guy. Um, and, um, you know, we learned a lot and had a blast. And hopefully you will find it as enjoyable and interesting as we did. Larry and I uh, had a great discussion. Here it is. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Chang Bullock, who represents a name that some American collectors might not be familiar with, but a company that is doing some fascinating work in the modern or what some people have called postmodern coin space. Coin Invest Trust, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Larry, for having me. I'm honored to be here. So uh, as I, I just mentioned, you work with Coin Invest Trust, which people may not be aware of or may know as the firm that makes coins that don't always exactly look like coins. How did you yes. get started with coins uh, as a collector or just on the marketing side? And how did you wind up uh, at Coin Invest Trust about three years ago? Yeah, great question. Uh, I started collecting in my teens. I was I started collecting when my grandfather 
gave me an Eisenhower silver dollar. And that sort of started my fascination with coins. And I went on to, you know, toned Morgan silver dollars and then eventually paper currency. And then when I got out of school, I went to school for electronic engineering and I was working in that field for a little while. And then I started part-time with a company, a direct marketing company that sold coin collectibles to consumers. And I loved it so much that I actually quit my electronic engineering and just have stayed in this field for the last 30 years. Um, so I've been in the field of the coin collecting world, primarily marketing coins directly to uh, consumers. And a few years back, CIT uh, was actually a vendor of the company that I was worth. And I was so impressed with their coins, the quality, the innovation behind what they put out that it got to the point where I started thinking, you know, I would like to work for a company uh, that has sort of this creative brain trust of, of coin knowledge uh, and be at sort of more of the forefront of the coin industry. And that's how I got started. So about three years ago, uh, I joined CIT. Uh, I represent primarily the U.S. division here. And uh, yeah, you're right. Most customers, uh, most collectors in the U.S. may not know the name Coin Invest Trust, but certainly uh, we've been trying to brand ourselves over the last few years as uh, more of a simplified CIT brand. And I think that's starting to gain traction here in the U.S. Okay. So how did CIT get into the business of selling coins? I understand uh, the company had a big milestone in the last few years, and it's, um, you know, not many people have heard of Liechtenstein, much less could spell it. Um, and, <laughs> right. and you and you guys uh, call that tiny enclave home. But uh, there's an interesting story to how the company got involved in coins and all that, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the company has been around for over 50 years now. And it actually started off uh, right around 1970. There was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Gunther Gruber, uh, who started a coin dealership in Liechtenstein. And the coin dealership was a pretty traditional coin dealership. They were He was importing a number of different coins uh, from around the world to sell within his region. Um, and shortly thereafter, he hired on a gentleman by the name of Michael Volt, who essentially became the owner of CIT. And so for a number of years, they, were, they ran it as a sort of traditional coin dealership. But then in 1982 was probably their first, how should I say, path into the creation of all of their own branded coins. And they actually uh, created a Swiss uh, shooting Thaler coin in 1982. And they actually made them out of platinum and palladium, which, you know, when you think about it back then, there weren't too many platinum and palladium coins floating around. And surprisingly, it sold remarkably well in the United States. And that got them thinking that, hey, maybe we should really start working on creating our own coins uh, and marketing them uh, as collectible coins. Uh, so that set them on a path and a journey. And over the years, they actually created world's first on a number of different fronts in the coin industry. And even though a lot of the collectors in the United States may not recognize CIT, they will absolutely recognize the technologies that CIT was responsible for bringing into the marketplace. Um, so it started off first with a coin that was an Albania train coin in 1988. It actually won Coin of the Year award where it showed a train coming out of the tunnel. And the tunnel was actually a hole into the coin. So it had a very uh, realistic sort of 3D depth effect on the coin. Uh, and that won it Coin of the Year. And then in 1992, 
Uh, the company developed the very first colorized coin that the world has ever seen. Um, and then from there, they did the first licensed coin in 1992. They started the Tiffany series. They started some of the holograms, the uh, Swarovski crystals and jewels and coins. They were the uh, innovator of that. So a lot of the technologies that you see today actually stemmed from CIT way back when. And then most recently in 2016 is when they started smart minting. And smart minting sort of brought all of our coins to a brand new level. And smart minting, you may ask, well, what is smart minting? Smart minting is technology that we use to create super special effects on the coins. And everything ranging from ultra high relief pieces, which you're familiar with, Jeff, and then also um, taking coins and making them a much larger diameter uh, with the same amount of metal without losing any details. That's another uh, impact of smart minting. So collectively, it's sort of a technology that we use to really make our coins innovative and market leaders. While we're uh, primarily concerned on the numismatic front with this podcast and with ourselves here, I, I think one of the things about the product that I am most impressed about in addition to the quality, in addition to the innovation, is the idea that it seems to have an appeal beyond just numismatically. Can you address that? Yeah, that's a really uh, great point. You know, it's interesting because when you look at our staff of employees at CIT, um, the one thing that sort of carries through with all of them is that they're super passionate about the industry and they're super passionate about what they create. And what's nice is it's a collective group of individuals that sort of span the age ranges, sort of span the different backgrounds. So what's great about that is when they come up with ideas, they actually come up with ideas that touch all sorts of different facets of life. So they each bring sort of their collaborative life experiences into the process. So when they create coins, a lot of times those coins are a direct reflection of a different part of our society. So they tend to extend outside of just numismatic historical figures on coins. They extend to all sorts of different things, art, important people, important events, uh, wildlife, of course. Um, so a lot of different topics. Music is featured on our coins quite a bit. Um, so the things that make sort of life life is reflected directly on our coins. I'm glad you mentioned the Albanian coin because, of course, you're referring to the giant, I want to say, five-ounce silver version. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was also a like a copper-nickel version, and I recently added that to my collection. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's uh, I wrote about the Albanian coin several years ago because it was one of these just revolutionary things and, you know, it's it's opened the door to so much. I mean, there's there's things now that are now it's not a not a release that you guys were involved in. But mm -hmm. this this morning I saw somebody posted a garbage can shaped coin coin. Of course, it's Oscar the Grouch. I mean, it's you know, it, it, it's a it, it fits the theme. But, you know, this this idea of, you know, a coin is not just this round hunk of metal. It's so much more. It can be sculptural. It can be like you mentioned, the, the color, it can have a hologram. What are some of the challenges then with developing these postmodern coins, both from a production standpoint, but also a sales perspective? I mean, getting people to really accept and appreciate what they are. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the nice thing about what CIT does is the process of deciding 
what to create uh, is all encompassing at the company. And what I mean by that is um, we come up internally with a lot of different ideas. And the nice part about it is they put those ideas in front of the entire staff to get their opinions on, to uh, get their input on. And so it's not just one person sitting in, you know, some cubicle coming up with these ideas. It's really the group sort of putting in all of their feedback to help mold and shape what we eventually create. So the challenges are probably the biggest challenge is really trying to figure out exactly which ones out of all of those great ideas that we actually, you know, put into production. Uh, because our coins are, are distributed all around the world, there's a lot of different things that are, you know, the thought process that's put into that. So number one, you know, the theme. Is the theme something that could resonate in most of the world, or at least in some of our larger markets? It has to be, you know, has to resonate in those larger markets. Two, is the, is it technically possible? So we go spend a lot of time working directly with the minting facility to make sure things are technically feasible. That takes probably a good bulk of the time of the production. Some other things, working with the countries uh, that we deal with as far as the effigies are concerned. You know, some people think that, you know, well, you can just strike whatever type of theme coins on whatever some of these smaller countries. Well, that's not really true. Some of these countries, a lot of these countries have very strict rules as to what they will allow or not allow on their coinage. So a lot of that is taken into consideration too, where we may come up with a theme and want to put it with this uh, particular issuing country, but that issuing country has some sort of issue with that design or the theme or whatever. So we go back to the drawing board. So there's a lot of things that go into coins than just coming up with an idea and then just, you know, putting it down on the minting press. To your point, you have to think about where is it going to be marketed to? What type of audience is going to receive this coin? You know, even down to the things of how do we ship these coins to different parts of the world? Is there going to be special things that we have to be aware of when we ship these coins, like the packaging and, and where we source the packaging and things like that? So all sorts of different logistics and all sorts of different thoughts go into the coins. But I go back to probably the most challenging part, because our company is so creative, is just trying to figure out which ones to do. So I want to make a Jeff coin. Am I going to have to go with Palau or can I get Cook Islands? Well, it just depends <laughs> on if the queen likes you or not. <laughs> no, it's, it's an interesting deal because I certainly out and you bring up a good point. Cook or Islands. Mongolia. You guys have used Mongolia. Yes. Yeah, well, and that brings up a good point. I'll bring up a couple points. Cook Islands, for example, uh, certainly the queen's office has to approve all of those particular designs. If it has anything to do that might be against, you know, the royal family or Britain or any of those type of things that might be a political conflict, they will not approve that design on the coins. Uh, same with Mongolia. Mongolia, all the designs have to be approved by the central bank. And so, for example, you have seen really cool animal coins coming out of uh, the Mongolian. Mm -hmm. uh, and for that, like the Majestic Eagle and, of course, most recently, the Magnificent Orgali. But the animals have to have something to do traditionally with Mongolia. They just won't approve, say, for example, a platypus <laughs> Mongolian coin. It has <laughs> to have something to do with Mongolia. So there is definitely some thought process that you have to put into that. 
Now, you talked about pushing the technological boundaries, and, and you guys, CIT generally works with uh, Myers Mint, BH Myers Mint mm-hmm. in Germany, mm-hmm. and that's really at the, at the vanguard of it. Talk about some of the most challenging aspects of, of pushing the boundaries. I mean, I know some of this can get into, and I don't want to get bored people with the technical side of it sure. too much, but I, I, I understand, and I, I just... I need an example maybe of, you know, times you had to go back to the drawing board or it, it took a lot longer <laughs> to work out. I mean, cause some of the shapes are just like one of the new coins you have coming out is, is really sculptural. It's this uh, gold plated silver statue of Zeus. Yes. How do you, how, you know, is that uh, some of these aren't, are they die struck? How do you come up with yeah. a die that does this? What's, I mean, you know, you're, you, are you using CAD software to develop the design? Talk mm-hmm. about that side of the process for a little bit, please. You bet. You bet. There are definitely limitations, even though you look at some of our coins and think to yourself that these guys can strike anything. Um, but <laughs> there definitely are limitations. And first and foremost, I just want to state for the record that everything that you see at CIT is a struck product. Um, so it's not cast, it's not a molded type piece. Everything that you see is struck. Because everything is struck, there definitely is technical limitations. And you actually bring up a specific coin, um, which I can use as a good example, the Zeus. When you look at that Zeus coin, one of the technical challenges is how tightly can you make a corner on one of those sort of shaped coins because it's struck there's only so much uh there's so much pressure and there's so much time that needs to take place to make that metal mold into the different shapes especially in and around corners uh one of the things that we're extremely proud of at cit with the smart minting technology is we are able uh, to make high relief literally go all the way to the edges of the coin. And that's something that most mints cannot do. And it's, it's a very tough thing to do. However, even with our ability to do that, you still have to be careful on where that, um, how should I say, metal flows and how sharply you can make it into corners. Um, so that's like one technical aspect. Another technical aspect is how sharply uh, can you make the actual relief? You might remember a couple of years ago when we did an ACDC coin. We did a razor's edge silver coin that had sort of this canyon-like uh, cavity inside the coin. And that wasn't laser cut out or anything. That was actually struck into the coin. And that process alone, I saw some of the tooling that literally broke in half from trying to do that the first time around. And that stuff happens all the time. Now, the end user most of the time never hears about that because certainly we're not going to make that very public, but it happens a lot. And when you're dealing with cutting edge technology like this, one of the challenges is it takes a long time. I mean, our coins, a lot of our coins have been in development for well over six months, but you need that time to test the duelings, to test the dyes, to test the pressure, to test the colorization process, to make sure that it fuses enough into the coin. All of those different things are definitely challenges. And yeah, we've had plenty of failures (laughs) along the way, but thankfully out of all those failures, there's been enough really cool stuff that comes out of it uh, that we can provide to our, our clients. Yeah, I would definitely think that uh, the challenges come in when you depart from round as far as the shape of the coins go. 
But mm-hmm. your company has also not shied away from using the rim as part of a design element, too, I think, of the yes. meteorite coin. Yes. And that, to me, uh, just shows that you understand the entire palette. Yeah, you know, it's it's it's, it's incredible because, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's when you start to shy away from just using traditional design on a round planchet, you start thinking along the lines of, okay, well, the relief doesn't necessarily have to be just in the center. It can extend out all the way to the edges to make a more creative design. To your point, uh, along the rim, uh, you notice some of our coins, like the Titanic coins that we're releasing in this winter launch, have micro printing uh, minted along the outside rim. And again, you think about that, you don't see that on other coins, um, but it allows for another dimension of the story to be told about that coin. And then, yeah, you're right. Along the edge, we do a lot of times individual numbering along the edge. In the case of the most recent meteorite coin, we put an actual piece of meteorite right into the edge of the coin. Um, So yeah, even with a round coin, we look for alternative ways to create something innovative and something that tells a good story. You know, you've mentioned a few of the new issues uh, coming out. The Titanic, you just mentioned uh, mm-hmm. particularly. And that's that program is, I think, one of my favorites. Let's explore that a little bit. Um, you got uh, 1912 Titanic. Everybody knows the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie, all that. Uh, oh, yes. Don't tell me I haven't seen it. How does it end? <laughs> um, the, the, the ship, door, the ship goes this. down, I think. Yeah. <laughs> let me say this. The door is big enough for two people. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, that that's what I've heard. So, mm-hmm. uh, But, you know, it wouldn't resonate as well, right? Exactly, but, I mean, exactly. You know, one of the things I really like about this um, – so you have a one ounce silver coin, appropriately a 1912 mintage yep. uh, color, high relief, but you actually have coal recovered from the Titanic. How did, did you don a, um, uh, a scuba, <laughs> scuba gear and, and go uh, to the bottom of the ocean to find this? How, how did this, how did you guys come into this? That would make a fantastic story now, wouldn't it? Um, no, it did not. However, we did uh, acquire Uh, a large piece of coal that was recovered in the year 2000 through an expedition. And so if you actually go on our website and download the media kits for many of our coins, the picture of that and a little bit of history behind that is actually on our website. Um, So, you know, our, our dealers are able to do that and share that with their customers. But when you look into this, yeah, that large piece of coal was used, was broken apart essentially into a bunch of smaller pieces to be used specifically for these coins. So out of the five specifications of the Titanic coin, three of them have an actual piece of coal that was part of this 2000, year 2000 recovery piece. That is so cool. And uh, you have um, a three ounce silver, you have um, a one ounce gold high relief. Um, yes. I, and, you know, the, the interesting thing on that, the one ounce gold coin, 110 mintage, how is it possible? How I mean, I, and I, I don't say this to sound gauche, but how can you make money making a coin there's only 110 of? And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of mints are doing this, you know, 99 mintage, some of the kilos you have are 99 mintage, low mintage stuff. It seems like it's an awful lot of work to come up with all that you know, the dyes and all this stuff, sourcing everything, you know, maybe in, in this case, the, the coal, or sometimes it's a rights issue that you have to pay for. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does that work? I mean, how can you get away with just 110 mintage? That seems crazy low. 
It is. It is crazy low. It, and again, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times people will go, you know, uh, our products, we never shy away from the fact that our products are premium products. So first of all, um, they are going to be, say, a little bit more expensive than, um, you know, a gold eagle, a $50 gold eagle. But the things to step back and look at is, you're right, there's only 110 minted. And fortunately for us as a company, uh, and not many people know this, but we as a company actually do about three to 400 different products a year. Now, a vast majority of those products people don't see through our official launches. A vast majority of our products are actually custom programs uh, that clients request for us to do. So uh, it could be a specific coin company that wants you know, that would like to have a specific design put on a coin. So we'll work with issuing uh, countries and come up with a program for them. It could be, you know, government issues. It could be, um, you know, different, how should I say, collaborations that are a little bit spinoffs off of our uh, CIT branded coins. So thankfully, because we do that many different issues a year, we are fortunate in the sense that many of our issues, we can have a mintage of 110 and still be financially be able to put that out because overall we do a, a, a number of different programs. And I would think that the low mintage also enhances the quality of the packaging and the presentation that these go along with. I mean, these are not something that you just shove into an album. These are something that uh, the presentation, the packaging really is important as well to continue the theme and the beauty of the product itself. Absolutely. And you hit it, hit the nail exactly on the head there. Um, all of our packaging, we like to have all of our packaging tell a story as well. Um, a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, I should say, we went into a more standardized type of packaging. And the reason why we did that is because we wanted people to start recognizing what a CIT coin is, similar to like Tiffany. You see a Tiffany box, you know exactly that's Tiffany just by looking at the box. Um, and we planned on doing that and we executed on that with the CIT brand where we put these boxes out where you can see the coin without even opening the box. And then typically around that coin uh, is a story card slash certificate that we use to help magnify the story. So for example, like on the Titanic coins, the three pieces that have the actual piece of coal, they each have a story box that has different images of the Titanic um, to, again, add sort of that characteristic background to it to match a coin design, uh, to give it, how should I say, more flavor than just looking at just the coin itself. I want to talk about the noble now for a minute because yes. that's something that wasn't a uh, CIT product originally. And that's something that uh, has come back uh, into the fold here recently. Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. folks might know the noble uh, bullion coin uh, from Isle of Man. Mm -hmm. You all have something coming out really fascinating uh, very soon with that, a, a brand new look for it, right? Yes, absolutely. So the Noble, um, if you look up what the Noble coin is, obviously it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, but the modern issue Noble started in 1983. And you're right, it was initially struck by Pop Joy Mint. It, was, it came out as a platinum coin, and then shortly thereafter, they came out with all sorts of uh, the design and all sorts of different metals. But the interesting thing about it is ever since 1983, the design of the Viking ship on the coin itself has stayed the same. 
all the design elements have stayed the same. And Isle of Man, again, speaking of, how should I say, countries that have sort of set ways that they want to have things done, they were very, very protective about that design because of the history of the noble, how far back that history goes. When that design was initially released in 1983, it wasn't like other people didn't think, hey, let's, you know, modify the design or make a new design. They said, no, they wanted that design to be iconic. And it did. It became iconic as the modern issue noble. It won coin of the year award, uh, different things like that. And then what we did is we worked with Isle of Man to take that design and sort of bring it into the present. And what I mean by that is that design created back in 1983 was designed using that type of technology. With our technology now, we were able to take that very iconic design and enhance it. So when you look closely at that noble coin, the new one that's coming out for 2022, you'll see that the waves are more detailed. The details on the boat are more detailed. The birds that are flying in the background are, are much more detailed. The dragon's head uh, that's on the Viking ship is, is, in my opinion, way cooler looking now than what it was before. And even the sail of the Viking ship has a texture of the fabric of the sail itself. Uh, which makes it look really lifelike. So if people take the previous nobles uh, that were issued from 1983 on up to 2000 and look at them closely compared to this new one that's coming out in 2022, they're going to see some radical differences. And I believe everybody's going to agree that that design looks way better now uh, than what it did just even two years ago. And um, one of the sizes for the noble is a, is a good talking point to delve into this side of the minting you guys have a half gram gold version of that i believe that's correct mm -hmm. and um you also just a few minutes ago mentioned the custom minting and all the different you know program type stuff mm -hmm. was it cit that was at the the fore of this uh smaller and smaller gold coins uh, particularly the 50th ounce which a half gram is like a 60 you know, 62 of them to get to an ounce. Right, exactly. Uh, but, you know, this as the price of gold uh, got increasingly higher, the size and content of the gold got smaller and the, the technology required, to, I mean, the coins were just, it's so, so tiny, so little cute sometimes, you know, uh -huh. um, and sometimes you have these little neat little shapes or whatever. Yes. What's, um, what's been the response to that? Who's buying this? Somebody who just wants uh, affordable gold with a neat theme, a low mintage, or what's a, what mm -hmm. does that product represent? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact how our products tend to extend beyond sort of the traditional numismatic world. And I will have to say that those half gram gold coins, which CIT is increasingly getting, you know, better known for, because we have a lot of them, well over 100 different of these half gram gold coins, they appeal to a lot of different people, not just coin collectors. So for example, this half gram gold noble is certainly going to appeal to the traditional coin collector because they know the noble, they know the history of the story. But even in this same release, we made a half gram gold uh, semi-truck. And so the truck drivers have sort of been in the news lately about, you know, being essential workers. And so we thought to ourselves, you know, we should make uh, this half gram gold semi-truck that's in the shape of an actual uh, semi-truck. And, and we did that 
large in part because of the topic, but as well that, you know, who doesn't know somebody in their life that isn't, you know, that is a, that's a truck driver. Pretty much everybody knows somebody who's a truck driver. My dad actually drove truck for a number of years. So it resonated with me from an emotional standpoint, and it will resonate with a lot of people, an emotional standpoint, because of that connection. A lot of our other half gram gold coins, we have things like snowflakes, a baby pacifier, you know, stars, angels, different things like that. So not only are you getting a pure gold piece, which of course, you know, has inherent value in it, but in addition to that, you get something that has emotional connection uh, typically to somebody's life. And that's where it comes back to the question earlier regarding outside the the numismatic world. Now, I've got to, uh, I think I may be premature in asking for this one because I was really impressed by Elbrus in uh, 2021. So I'm looking <laughs> for number seven in that series. And yes. how often do these do, do the series get uh, updated annually, or does it just depend? Yeah, generally they get uh, updated annually. Um, almost all of the series do, and um, you know we. It's interesting how we approach some of those series. Some of the series end up only being like three, four, five year series. Some of them end up being seven. Some of them, like the Tiffany, have been going on <laughs> for 17, 18 years now. Um, so it just kind of really depends on the strength of the theme or sort of the, the story behind the theme. Um, the seventh, you know, uh, mountain coin, if you want to call it that, uh, the Seven Summits Peak, that would be the last one of the series, specifically not because of the demand, but because of the theme itself. It was about the seven tallest summits in each of the, you know, continents. Um, so that will be the last one that will come out for Antarctica. And so, yes, the series, you know, once we start them, it, it just depends, you know, like the Trap series, for example, Honestly, we didn't know if that was going to continue on as a series. When that started out uh, a few years back and it blew the socks off of everybody um, and how cool it looked and sort of the emotion you got out of it, um, it basically begged to be a series. And let me jump in. And it was time perfectly for lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) It was absolutely right. Yes, no doubt about it. (laughs) We were feeling that uh, so much in those early few weeks. No Uh, doubt. No but, doubt. But yeah, now it's, I mean, you've got a new one coming out. That's, uh, it just speaks to the, you know, you're willing to let the market take you where you're going to go sometimes. And sometimes mm-hmm. you lead the market where maybe it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and you know, the thing, uh, and I think you see this as well, Jeff, too, especially here in the U.S., you know, the U.S. coin market was so traditional for so long that now it's starting to evolve. You're starting to see a lot of, coin collectors really start to pay attention to these type of issues. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that there is a younger group of people that are coming into the marketplace. You know, it takes you two seconds to look on Instagram or Facebook, uh, any type of social media and start to see that there is a different type of crowd that's coming into numismatics. And honestly, they want to own something that they personally just enjoy it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily about the mint mark or the year or can you find a die crack or anything like that anymore it's really about do you like the coin and that's it's funny because i hear that more and more often from sort of the younger generation that's coming in and they are starting to shape the coin industry as to what is being collected what has value in the secondary market and many of our coins you can tell by the values in the secondary markets after they they started to circulate 
they're in demand. And so there is definitely an audience within the uh, numismatic community that really loves what we issue. And a lot of the other mints around the world are definitely taking notice and they're trying to do their best to issue, you know, coins that they think are the coolest, (laughs) the coolest and the best. But what is probably most fascinating about that is that, you know, if I go to the average coin show in the U.S., mm-hmm. I mean, I know, for instance, CIT had a booth, uh, has had a booth at the World Money Fair in Berlin back when that was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. pre-COVID and all that. But you guys don't have that sort of retail customer facing activity in the U.S. from a corporate level. But I see a lot of social media stuff, like you said, you know, Mm -hmm. folks are finding this in different ways. You know, they don't have to go dig through Buffalo nickels and St. Gaudens gold coins to find this. They're finding it online and, and through a handful of distributors that way. How difficult is it to reach that market? And I want to get the the truck driver coin. I don't know where to go. Am I, you know, Mm -hmm. so talk about the challenges in, in that regard. Yeah, I, I, the challenges are sort of, how should I say, um, self-born on our end because so many of our collectibles have such a low mintage, right? So you're talking a lot of the coins that have mintages of less than a thousand. To your point, it's not like, you know, half the dealers are going to have a coin sitting in their, you know, Buffalo nickel box. It's just not going to happen. So our distributors, and we have a great group of distributors around the world, I believe do a pretty good job, especially with the limited of number of coins that they each can get, of getting it out there in front of the consumer as best way that they can. Uh, social media and the internet in itself has been you know, extremely helpful for us because, again, you put one picture out there and it can be viewed you know, anywhere around the world. And it only takes one picture of something like an obsidian black, black Panther to circulate around the internet for, you know, tens of thousands of people to go, Hey, I want one of those. Where do I find it? And word starts getting around. So you're right. It's not distributed necessarily through your traditional uh, coin dealers where you sit there on at a table and try to find one. But because of our distributors uh, doing a really good job of trying to get it out there in all these different internet type of avenues, whether it's companies' websites, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Facebook. A lot of times it's you, you'll see them in coin groups, private coin groups that are put together to help distribute this information. Uh, one way or the other, it tends to get in front of the customer and eBay. I should mention eBay too. A lot of times you'll find things on eBay uh, after they started circulating through the dealers um, and you know people are seeing them there as well. Awesome. Well, I know that I'm looking forward to seeing these and and course we'll have uh coverage on a handful of the issues it's it's so difficult when like you say you're doing 300 coins a year or whatever it's um mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know we we can't write about everything and you guys are just one mint or issuing firm when you know then i i coordinate with dozens of these these folks around the globe so we have to be uh choosy but i i appreciate you taking the time to explain some of this and give people some insight. I, you know, I don't know how much people know about the modern market that it's become second nature to me just because it's mm-hmm. what I'm used to. Right. And I, you know, oh yeah, you know, that's a, that's a custom issue. That's a, you know, like something I wrote about today, there's seven coins, but two of them, the mint that issued them wasn't selling them direct. They're going through exclusive distributors and all that, you know, there's so many nuances to this. And it's for the casual observer, 
you know, I think wouldn't even know where to begin. So at least we've, we've shed some light into a little bit into this area of the market today. So I thank you for that. Well, yeah, I and- think also we need to, uh, you say about wouldn't know where to begin, but I think uh, publicizing the website would be a good place to start. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I was just about to mention that. So any of your listeners uh, can definitely view our website. It's, you know, www.cit.li. So if they go there, they can see all of our coins. They can see all the new issues that just came out. And again, you start entering some of those uh, titles of those uh, coins, you know, into your Google fields, you will find people that that are distributors that sell those coins. But in order to see them close up, they got great videos and high resolution photos of all the new releases. And um, yeah, that's a great place for any of your listeners to start. Yep. And if you if you go there now, you can see the American alligator coin that I missed out on. But uh, that's a great you know, coin. That yeah, no, a that's great a great one. coin. That and the great white together. I mean, those are just awesome. But uh, yep, yep. And of course, any of your listeners can reach out to me. I have a you know Instagram account. Just look under Chang Bullock, you'll find me. Certainly follow along, and I'd be happy to answer any questions of any of your listeners that are out there. And I appreciate you mentioning the videos as well because CIT is my gosh. You know, the, some of the stuff you got to see it to appreciate it, and those videos uh, really do help. And uh, certainly for for somebody who whose appetite was wedded by this, uh, whose you know interest was piqued. Uh, there's a world of, of possibilities out there uh, from you guys. And uh, so what a, what a great place to start. So thank you again. No, thank the both of you for having me on board and allowing me to share my story. So I really appreciate it. And that was our discussion with Chang Bullock. Uh, Larry and I enjoyed our time with him. want to thank him. We want to thank you, of course, for hanging on this long in the show. And uh, we want to thank the fine folks at CoinWorld Plus. Uh, by now, maybe Chris has downloaded the app and gotten his coin scanned, I think. Uh, you out there as well listening should do that and um, start uh, looking to give your collection a voice. Speaking of voice, I'm about all out of a voice today, (laughs) all the talking. Um, I think um, I'm going to let you sum it up, and then I'll give the kicker as usual. Thanks so much for listening this week. Uh, We'll be back with you next week with another episode of the Corn World Podcast. But in the meantime, Jeff, what would you like for our listeners to know? Just remember, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.